0: The Fundshack podcast is produced by Linear B Group, the leader in content and media services to the investment industry. If you want to set up a high-quality in-house podcast for your firm, Linear B Group offers an end-to-end service, so get in touch at LinearB.media. Now on with the show. You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today my guest is Daniel Zwern, CEO and CIO of Arena Investors, a global asset manager that seeks out special situations across the world. Daniel has some very alternative perspectives on the opportunities in private markets and how to prosecute them. And so we talk about the moral hazard of fund management, the cyclicality of private market strategies and the opportunities that arise from regulatory and structural arbitrage. It's a goodie. Dan, welcome to Fundshack. You're actually quite an unusual uh, guest for Fundshack because Arena doesn't seem to fit in any neat bucket. And maybe that's the point. Why did you set up Arena? I think it was in 2015. What was, what was the opportunity set that you saw?
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and I appreciate uh, being here as well as the question. I think uh, Arena is based on a, an original business plan I created in 1995. And the point was to create an investment business that was a Warren Buffett style moded franchise, right? Where we could effectively be investors first. And in the early mid nineties, as alternative firms started to get out of the box of being just a PE firm and started to think about bu- building broader base franchises, it was our view that, you know, or my view at the time that you know, there were two models to do that. One was to become what I referred to as fidelity of alternatives, right? And effectively be a packager of branded beta uh, and bring a long only model to the alternative space thereby actually effectively making it not terribly alternative. The other way uh, was to look into history and think about the folks who had been really um, excellent deployers of capital over time and look at the models that they employed in order to do that on a systematic and programmatic basis such that ultimately we could have the opportunity to create a business that had material and tangible value. And so we looked at um, companies throughout history or modern capital uh, capitalist history, certainly starting in the call it 1600s and onward, although. Elements of this, you know, existed far before that time.
0: So you got the history books out in order to set your strategy.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Um, well, there's no extra credit for originality here. Uh, so let's <laughs> right. go find the best ideas that have ever been and and look at reasons why things like entities like the Rothschilds and other, other of the European merchant houses flourished over centuries, or the global grain traders and how they've built their business over the last 200 years into kind of powerhouses, mm. or the Asian Hongs, look at... Uh, K.S. Lee's business, Chung Kong, or the Quacks, and how they kind of did what they did. And the answer was, it wasn't because they chose to, or set themselves up to kind of be a better picker of, you know, securities. Um, They weren't relying on superior uh, brain power. They were relying on creating uh, scenarios whereby they had some sort of scarce commodity, cash or otherwise, as they looked at a value chain, and such, such that both People uh, examining a transaction, both buyer and seller, or both borrow and lender, whatever the counterparty relationship might be, had the ex- could have the exact same view on value, but the other guy needed your scarce resource, and therefore you were going to have to pay a premium.
0: So it's a structural issue they're looking for. They're not trying to value things differently and be cleverer.
1: Yeah, they, they are looking to set the table such that the kind of good stuff comes to them. And they are recognizing yeah. that. Um, the enemy of, of, of long-term sustainable profits is moral hazard, um, which has been the primary reason why financial institutions of various sorts have
0: blown themselves up over the, over the centuries. Could you explain why, why moral hazard comes into this?
1: Sure. Well, in many instances, whether it's uh, a hedge fund or a uh, particular type of fund or an insurance company or a real estate company, etc., people uh, aggregate capital um, with a, some sort of stovepiped strategy. And the reality is that every single um, thing that we might look at w- to which we might apply the, the, the label you know, uh, permutation of industry product and geography right, has its own frequency and wavelength. Hmm. And it's all, it all cycles. And nothing's ever good all the time. right? Hmm. And so you know, to take the extreme, as Buffett says, when uh, others are fearful, I'm greedy. And when others are greedy, I'm fearful. Right? Typically, the best stuff comes b- by being on the other side of those who were subject to these moral hazard issues. Mm. And so when you look at the kind of folks that I had referred to who have flourished over centuries, uh, they are on the right side of that trade.
0: Yes, but you're describing 95% or more of the fund management industry. This is how the world works. It's almost how the human brain works. You have to categorize things in order to kind of just deal with with the world. And if I can't put you in a box, how do I deal with you? Um,
1: well, I think uh, first off is the premise that it's, quote unquote, the fund management industry, right? Because many of the best world's best investors choose not to be a part of the fund management industry for just that reason, right? And what we wanted to be was fundamentally a great investor and then think about how to capitalize those great investments. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the kind of, you know, best investors out there, maybe that's, uh, you know, in Europe that could be, you know, uh, over time or recent history, you know, the, the Benedettis, right. Mm-hmm. The De Benedettis or, mm. um, uh, or Vincent Bolleray, you know, Vincent Bolleray doesn't run funds. Mm. He makes money. Um, mm-hmm. you know, John Malone in the United States. And obviously some of the insurance folks like Warren Buffett or Prem Watsa, or, uh, uh, there's a business called Markel. It, it's in the property and casualty insurance, but they actually do quite a bit of clever investing, uh, mm-hmm. or WR Berkeley. None of those people have funds or need to have funds. Right. And so not that there's anything wrong with funds, if one can create funds that allow you to pursue things that don't, that do make sense uh, Mm -hmm. when they do and and don't make sense when they don't uh, and and not to pursue them when they don't. And so um, again, that this notion of fidelity of alternatives sometimes makes, make people think that that's this the only way it can be done. And so the ubiquity of that thought of that thinking provides opportunity in and of itself because if everyone's going to kind of close their eyes and look left, right, there's probably going to be a lot of stuff on the right. And we want to be on the right side of that, of that kind of, um, perception or misperception and, and effectively be a beneficiary of it.
0: Just operationally that might, that must be quite difficult to execute because, um, if you're raising money from for investors, you know everyone wants everyone wants to add value right through the chain, and in, in order yes. to add value, you need a balanced portfolio, and in order to do that, they need to know. You know, it's a, LP funds, for example, they're a black box already, so we need to have some idea of what you're going yes. to do. Yes, so that that must create you know organizational complexities on the fundraising fund management side. I shouldn't yes. say fund management, but you know what I mean.
1: Yes, I think I think there's there's two way there are two ways that um, uh, investors or allocators approach that where it can make where it can make sense. Um, in the minority of the circumstances, uh, they are aware of this issue uh, and they find ways to uh, label it in certain ways um, yeah. that allow them to do the right thing. Yeah.
0: A linguistic solution. Uh, to, yeah. And
1: you know they start using the, you know things that I have done have been referred to as distressed or mezzanine or dis- or. Or uh, real assets, or all kinds of things, right? Um, at times, um, I'll you know be you know put into this notion of multi-strategy, but that's more of a hedge fund notion than a than an all than a, than a private assets notion. So that's one way, right, where they get it and they find a way to do it. The other is that uh, over time, uh, people start to use kind of convenient labels, and there's a they let a few on, in under the uh, in under the door. Yeah. And suddenly, there's this thing called opportunistic, and well, now I have an opportunistic bucket, so I got to fill it, right? And so that leads to its own, you know, unintended consequences, among other things. But that is another way uh, that investors find find their way toward these things. But Mm. definitely, it's not obvious to to many, uh, which is part of the opportunity, right? And Mm. so you continue to find ways to. Um, do things that do make sense and avoid things that don't and so we do complement our multi-strategy funds with what we refer to as excess capacity vehicles and so there are times when something we're already doing makes a ton of sense we're doing it already but we think there's m- much more to do and we'll sell that capacity in an in a in a particular geographic or product area that we think is compelling and that that runs div- directly opposite to the normal fund management industry which says i'm going to go, I'm going to articulate that X, Y, Z is a great thing to do. If you only give me the money, then I'm going to go do it, Mm. right? And then we'll see how it goes. Whereas we're saying, here's a thing that is good. We are doing it. We're doing it with or without you, but there's so much to do. Why don't you do it with us? And by the way, as soon as it's not good and therefore doesn't qualify on a return per unit of risk basis to access our multi-strategy funds, we won't offer it to you, right? And that's a good thing. We're going to keep you out of trouble. We're not going to put you up a tree. We're going to protect you. And then finally, I would say at times with some of our best investors, we become both an investment, um, an investee, uh, but also kind of a quasi consultant, right? Because we don't actually come in with our kind of peddling our wares in a given area, we have no biases, right? And so people can ask us, hey, I'm looking at, X, you know, this area, what do you think of it? And we'll say, well, um, as an example, someone asked me about certain parts of the residential uh, mortgage business and they, and they had a fund offering where the fund manager was touting how spectacularly wonderful it was. And what we said is, well, we're following it too. Uh, it's not wonderful. It could be wonderful. And we think it's coming to be wonderful, but this guy can't raise his fund such that he can have the money when it becomes wonderful, unless he tells you it is wonderful now. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we will be there when it is good And won't be there before it's good. And we're not gonna we don't have to say that it's good when it's not. Mm.
0: Yeah. This is very unusual, I think, because truth telling. Yeah, well, that's very unusual. (laughs) (laughs) But also because you know the alternatives industry has just done so well over the last decade or two. And it's like you know, if you were gonna look at success stories, the natural place is to just look at recent ones like like Blackstone. It's not like a flash in the pan. This is a great company that's grown over, you know, several decades, hugely successfully. They're the, the, but they're staying within the, you know, the bounds of in industry norms. You know, why not just emulate them? It's kind of a bold thing to do to look back to the 17th century or whatever, but it's paying off.
1: Well, I think you know, certainly if I wanted to invest in Blackstone, I would invest in the company, the stock of Blackstone, because mm. the owners of that stock have been the great beneficiaries of that model. Um, <laughs> and I, I would over the long haul, that's where their wealth is um, being accumulated. And so I would want to be aligned with them in Mm -hmm. doing that. Um, any one fun don't know. Right. Uh, because when you offer, uh, every type of product, what, what, you know, where's the differentiation, where's the edge, where's the alpha when you are, uh, when, when you're in a several trillion dollar market with a trillion dollars, it's hard to be terribly alternative, right? (laughs) Effectively, it, you know, I don't, not with respect to them specifically but ultimately you become the market at Mm -hmm. some point Mm -hmm. right uh and so that's still great for shareholders Mm. of blackstone and i'd I'd probably be a happy one Mm. um what that means in terms of you know the fund offering it just gets more and more difficult um to kind of deliver edge but ultimately maybe that's not what people want maybe they just want branding maybe they want you know institutional protection of careers Mm. maybe they want to make sure hey, you, no one ever went wrong with IBM, right? Yeah. And so, but, you know, that said, there's a ton of super commercial, uh, incredibly bright investing people at those places. And by the way, you could have great investors, individuals, uh, investors at those places, um, mm. just doing the best they can do with $30 billion in a, you know, $50 billion market or whatever it is, right? And, and they'll be the They'll give you the best chance of having the least worst.
0: Yeah. So I I could I completely buy the idea of investors first, no moral hazard, kind of an unconstrained approach. But that carries with it surely great operational complexity. So you're global, for example, but yeah. you're not you're not huge in terms of assets under management, no. but you're global. And so yeah. this is and and you look at all sectors and across the entire capital structure. Yeah. There's there's a there's a virtue sometimes in constraining yourself. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think, you know, the a, a, a very frequent response when we talk about being kind of global and multi strategy is, well, you know, I have this wonderful shipping mezzanine private credit guy in mm-hmm. Hamburg, and you can't possibly be as good as him at shipping mezzanine <laughs> in Germany or whatever. And our response to that is, what you have is a big bunch of moral hazard there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you have hammers that only see nails. And so, mm-hmm. You know, it is not coincidental that such a guy would keep saying, well, this is a wonderful thing to do, even when it's not. Yeah. And so we respond to that by saying, let's, let's, let's find a way to get the milk of that domain capability without the cow of the fixed cost infrastructure and the misalignment of interest. Yeah. And then we do that through the creation of what we refer to as joint ventures. And so in addition to our 160 people, where they subset of those in the front office and among our front office teams, we have North American corporate, real estate and structured finance global credit markets, natural resources, secondaries and liquidity solutions, European private investments and Asia-Pacific private investments. We have over 50 joint ventures all around the world. And each of those joint ventures has very deep particular sourcing analytical or servicing capabilities to which we want variable cost efficient and hyper aligned access. So uh, instead of being in the European shipping mezzanine fund, and you lock up for five or seven years and that stuff may or may not be good, And then when it's not good, you hear, you start to hear things like it was a bad vintage or, you know, 100 year flood or perfect storm or other ex post excuses. You do it when it does make sense and you don't do it when it doesn't. And lo and behold, when such a person is investing a good part of their net worth uh, in a ratio, set ratio with you. Mm. And we're, of course, making every decision up front and along the way. Mm. We're husbanding all the cash and all the bank accounts. Right, and so we effectively create a sourcing, servicing front end for that very particular, you know, person or group. Lo and behold, they actually don't want to do much at all, which is exactly what we want. We want people and partners who never want to do anything until they should be doing something, yep. and then when it's overwhelmingly obvious, um, that's exciting. It, you know, there was an investor, uh, George Soros's original partner, Jim Rogers, who said who said something to the effect of that he doesn't really like to invest; he just likes to look at find uh, cash sitting in the corner of the room. And just kind of sweep it on up, right? If it doesn't feel like that, if it feels like you're pressing, you're in the wrong thing. And so that those partnerships of which I've done over 150 over the last 25 years mean that we are dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people connected exclusively to our business that have very deep particular capabilities such that we are the home team in whatever product or geographic in, in, in investment area in which we're involved. At the same time, those are connecting to business units that themselves have a sufficiently wide domain uh, over which they run, like North American real estate as an example, such that there is very little chance that they're gonna have nothing to do, right? So that they're not gonna subject themselves or us to that moral hazard issue.
0: What's the secret of making those types of partnerships work in a nutshell? Um, Being very upfront with
1: our need for alignment of interest Hmm. and kind of seeing eye to eye from a commercial perspective. Yeah. it's hard to define, but we know it when we see it. We know there mm. there are people who have done a thing for forty years who are intensely, intensely commercial people. Almost like uh, you know, it's almost more that they are artists versus scientists, mm. uh, and we have real appreciation for that. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the times when these folks try to speak to more conventional asset managers, they say, "Well, do you have a hundred million dollars already? You know, who have you done it with?" Uh, you know, let's look at your systems, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Right. All yeah. we want is commercial killers. Yes. Right. And we will supplement the analytics po- po- portion or the mid and back office capabilities or whatever other things they lack so that we get that isolated, pure commercial capability, yeah. uh, working, you know, uh, putting its ore in the water with us at the same time. And then the final piece, uh, as you point out is all the system stuff. So we've been working on systems of our own since 2004 and have put several tens of millions of dollars into them and you're right it is complex uh and you're effectively running what what from a mid and back office perspective is what a bank should be uh and so it's hundreds if not thousands of accounts and many jurisdictions and uh fx hedging and um lots of you know uh checking things right Mm -hmm. and so we use this notion of servicing to start, right? Which is again not a thing you hear that word. You don't hear that word a lot in in the quote unquote asset management business. Mm. You hear it much more in real estate and other kind of pure liquid assets or asset companies. You hear it in the in the securitization markets. Or I heard it was really uh, with regard to what happened in the early '90s in the U.S. with the SNL crisis. And when all of those bad real estate loans arose, there were folks who created special servicing capabilities uh, married with investing capabilities.
0: Does servicing mean like workout teams?
1: It means everything from um, checking and onboarding and surveilling all the way through dealing with deep workout. Right. And so this notion of servicing sitting between the front office and the back office, providing operating leverage to both, as well as, as, and this is key, as well as a completely dispassionate second pair of eyes on everything you do, such that your front office or your joint ventures don't subject you to moral hazard through their Stockholm syndrome is key. <laughs> um, and we've married that with uh, capabilities that we have in India uh, that I learned along the way in order to kind of create cost-efficient scaling of those special servicing capabilities. And so our servicer, Quester Advisors, which was named for the folks in the Roman Republic who were sent out to the provinces to calculate and, and collect the taxes, uh, is based in Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville is like the current equivalent of what Dallas was in the 90s, which is a place with a good tax regime, a good time zone, and temporal proximity to a banking implosion. Uh, and so non-Miami, Florida was a place where many banks failed in the in 08 the crisis. And so there's an overabundance of great middle and back office bank-type oh. capabilities, right? right? Which we then supplement with our largest office, which is in Bangalore. And so, or now Bangalore, And so uh, that arose from the fact that along with a, some partners, I created a, a significant US focused, but India, mostly India based uh, consumer, uh, consumer lending business, AI driven consumer lending business. As part of ARENA? No, no this so, is a different yeah. thing I did right. uh, before ARENA was created. I've created several kind of financial institution oriented businesses yeah. from scratch. And here we had over 500 people of whom 90% were in India. And so I kind of became accustomed to how you build financial infrastructure linked to uh, a U.S. base that is mm-hmm. cost-efficient and highly scalable. So when we marry those three things—free-flowing uh, mandate, um, uh, aligned, and, and variable cost-efficient sourcing—with uh, the people, process, and IT around servicing, you then start to have material edge, which mm-hmm. you could to which you could refer uh, uh, as. You know, the creation of substantial intangible value yeah. in a franchise that has kind of repeat repeatable programmatic systematic ways of doing things uh, that ultimately uh, investors should value as a company.
0: Yeah, it's, I don't know much about these things, but it sounds to me like so a traditional private equity firm has much less flexibility in terms of interfacing with the market, but also has much simpler. Um, operational compliance fund admin requirements, whereas yes. you have great flexibility when interfacing with the market. Yes. But it means that you need much greater sophistication in your back office. Yeah. And, yeah. we're running an enterprise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, but that's where the edge comes. And you've, in, if you look at great, uh, great, uh, great allocators or true investors of capital over the last several centuries, they were very mid and back office intensive. Right, we talk about taking process risk versus value risk. So, of course, there's no free lunch. And so if I want to make what otherwise from a value perspective seems like free money, it means I'm going to have to work harder uh, in the context of the kind of infrastructure I'm going to need in order to handle whatever we're dealing with.
0: So just in terms of, uh, you know, the products, um, you know, I, we spend a lot of time on this show talking to people in what well, private credit increasingly, but mainly private equity and, and venture capital. Mm-hmm. You know, this has been... This this feels to me like a very solid way of of prosecuting growth in a in in any kind of relatively well managed economy. It's it doesn't feel like a cyclical play. It feels like structurally sound um, approach to helping businesses. Right. Um, w- would you agree? I mean, would w- what would you be opposed to just setting up a a strategy for for kind of let's say mid market European businesses and in the belief that that's just an ongoing opportunity or do you also see that as fundamentally over a long enough time horizon just a cyclical play
1: well we've been in a very in a in a in a pretty interesting bubble uh from late '9 until late 21 and that made it feel like it was going to go on forever uh, which is how bubbles always feel uh and certainly in europe you've had many many bubbles go back to the south sea bubble and so uh it, it feels good until it doesn't And so what happened was that that bubble was created by some highly irresponsible uh, monetary authority decisions Mm -hmm. starting in 2012 with QE2. The whole notion of QE itself is debatable with regard to its appropriateness in the marketplace and and the ultimate rate risks that it masks. And the moral hazard. Tons of moral hazard (laughs) there, tons of it. And so uh, when QE2 happened, this greatest ever asset bubble began to inflate. And it inflated, it inflated, and inflated. And then lo and behold, starting in 2020, incredibly reckless fiscal policy made its uh, presence known. Mm. Uh, certainly in the United States, but in many other large uh, large markets. And it was uh, briefly kind of masked with the theoretical imperative brought on by the uh, pandemic. And so what you've had now is suddenly a world where there's inflation again. And uh, as you may recall, again, moral hazard, there was uh, supply chain and it's just the, it's just COVID and people like to make all kinds of excuses when they kind of start doing the wrong things. And the re- reality was it was grotesquely reckless fiscal policy incinerating f- fiat currencies, making it ultimately impossible for monetary authorities to do anything other than raise rates. And so now in the United States, as an example, we have more uh, higher debt uh, uh, as a ratio of GDP than we did coming out of World War II, which was the previous kind of asset bubble of all time effectively uh, by virtue of the fact that most of the, of the world's major governments borrowed tremendously and then consequently destroyed a lot of the collateral uh, that, they, that they created as a result of that borrowing. And so that left them with no choice in the late 40s and 1950s to do anything other than have a combination of higher inflation and higher rates so that they could decrease the debt they effectively owed. And so now you're seeing the same thing. And so we have this massive, massive debt um, built up Mm -hmm. against this massive amount of assets that were effectively systematically overpriced, both from the perspective of the enterprise where asset Mm -hmm. values paid, but also uh, in the structure and advance rates and and overall Mm -hmm. uh, pricing of the credit that financed it. And so what happens? Well, it's got to go the other way. Has to, right? Um, Mathematically. And so what we saw is starting in late 2020, uh, a rolling series of train wrecks began. And again, jaw boning away, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. Let me get my next fund raised before I tell you how bad the last one is, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality was that in late 21, we saw growth implode, growth and venture implode. And why was that first? It was first because in many of those instances, you actually needed cash for the assets to exist, right? Because they were cash burning. And so you had all these wonderful unicorns with their horns and, mm. and white horses uh, right. running around needing cash. And suddenly yeah. people said, well, what, at, at what price, right? And it forced, uh, it created a catalyst for the recognition of the value, or in that case, lack thereof, that has then precipitated the implosion in that space that is only at best in the, in the bottom of the first inning. Mm-hmm. And so it created, uh, it, there's, there were over 3000, um, you know, kind of venture, uh, blowups, uh, or effectively quasi bankruptcies uh, mm-hmm. last year, right? In, in the venture world, people refer to this thing in the United States called the ABC, which is the, oh my goodness, the, I forgot what the A is for the benefit of creditors. Um, uh, but right. the point is that it's a way of burying a bankruptcy in your backyard and pretending that it didn't happen. Uh, and the venture folks are very good at pretending you uh, know, failures don't happen. So it's
0: hard to see in the data then, on defaults, presumably.
1: Uh, well, there's nothing frequently to
0: default, per se, yes, right? Yes, it's just right. fails. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so... Did Silicon Valley banks collapse play into that as well as part of the same ecosystem, I suppose? Or not
1: like really. This? That okay. was misunderstood. Uh, they didn't take a lot of actual venture lending risk. They took gigantic amounts of interest rate risk by owning securities without proper interest rate hedging, which is a whole separate okay. matter that <laughs> um, uh, was highly misunderstood by the marketplace. And so, ultimately, again, the, the first the the first area that popped was this uh, was this area in growth and venture. Then, in 2022, a number of large scale allocators this realized, wait, my assets are way longer than I thought, and I have to make pension payments or endowment related payments oh, yeah. or insurance related payments and suddenly my assets are way longer and you know oh xyz mega fund doesn't come every 2 years with a new 20 billion dollar pe fund and by the way these things could last 15 years and there's not distributing any money and how do i make my obligations yeah. set And Structural so, mismatch yes yes and so what happened there was that people, some of the, the smarter version you know members of that community started selling early Right. Uh, both because they realized they might have an asset liability match, but also because in all likelihood, they realized that there's a great lag between when value is diminished in those funds and when it's actually shown through the NAV statements. And so they hit the bid early and got out like Harvard Endowment, uh, in some instances, at least. Uh, and it was not coincidental that a several of the largest secondaries funds of all time were raised, right? Hmm. As large scale mega funds raised $20 billion funds to buy at 90 cents of NAV the interest in the other mega funds, uh, PE funds, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so that mismatch presented itself. And all of these come in the form of either cash needs, asset liability mismatches, or uh, uh, effectively maturity walls that force the realization of value. Because no one wants to admit that they've had a problem unless they're really confronted with it. Mm -hmm. Then a year ago, we had real estate arise, right? And we Mm -hmm. saw that uh, the sudden move in rates meant that certain banks were exposed and and that was further catalyzed by the fact that we realized for the first time that bank deposits can move with a speed and alacrity that they had never moved before. Because through technology, you can change where your deposits are very rapidly. And so traditionally, banks, uh, when they thought about their liability set, they, they, a thing called demand deposits, which is people like you and me that just put their money into the bank, were valued more highly than term deposits that have specific lifetimes. On the theory that over time, the average demand deposit was eight years or 10 years, and it was cheaper than having term deposits that were more expensive at three and five years. But lo and behold, those deposits certain, turned out to be only there when you uh, don't need them. Uh, and, and they started to move yeah. very suddenly. And that exposed a real uh, asset liability match, mismatch once again, which in the United States further exposed the fact that in the wake of the GFC, regulators, as regulators do, uh, both over-regulated and misregulated the U.S. banking system. And they basically said, you've stunk up most of the investments that you've made. So now you can only buy securities and, CRE l- and do CRE lending. Hmm. So lo and behold, through uh, through effectively moral hazard, they said, okay, I'm going to buy securities, ABS and other types of securities, but I'm going to go way longer so I can reach for yield in a non-yield environment. Right. And so-
0: This is during the 2010s they're doing this. Yes, after the And all the, the way through, it, all
1: the way up. Right. So they went longer so they got and longer more
0: exposure to commercial real estate going into COVID than historically. Well,
1: we- first, they were more exposed to securities, and right. those securities had long duration, and they effectively exposed themselves to interest rates more than they had ever been exposed. Right. And then on CRE lending, they went longer in CRE lending with greater advance rates at cheaper prices right, where they were most exposed, and they effectively exposed themselves to that as well. And were the victim of the secular change such that office basically has vastly less value than ever yeah. everybody ever ever thought it could. Mm-hmm. And so uh they, they did in fact have a perfect storm, uh, but it wasn't really their fault because they were only they were told they could only do a couple of things and they did a couple of things.
0: Mm. A moral hazard yet again. Was it regulation or were they was it regulation by raised eyebrow? Did they have to do it?
1: Well, it so happens that I was involved in two bank turnarounds in the wake of the uh in the wake of the GFC. And we tried uh, it, it, within those banks. As an example, when we looked at doing a loan, no matter how, uh, low in risk that had, you know, a double digit coupon, it so happened that in those two bank turnarounds, when we tried to do things outside that box, the regulators were violently opposed, um, because of their systematic misconception that the price of a loan, uh, the coupon effectively, the IRR of a loan is directly correlated with the risk of a loan, which is not, is frequently not the case, Mm. right? Yeah, and so we said, "Here's this low risk but higher return opportunity." Said, oh my God, no, 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 no! And then you have to put up more capital against it, and it effectively destroys the ROE. So the banks were literally sitting, uh, sitting with their boots on the necks of bank operators, forcing them the into were, absolutely yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. forcing them into things that made no sense. Yeah, right? right. And at the same time, those people had jobs; they had sh- shareholders; mm-hmm. th- they demanded a return on their equity, mm-hmm. and so they were caught in a in a corner and. They effectively create, created the seeds of the next bank implosion, which is now happening, uh, particularly in CRE. Uh, and then next came leverage finance. And so leverage finance evolved post the GFC in a very unique way, which was that there wasn't, there weren't, you know, just the CLO business, just the direct lending business, just the leverage lending business, just the PE business. Those all were one thing, unbeknownst to most of the participants among those four areas, right? And so what happened was that uh, CLO equity was marketed uh, post the GFC by saying, well, all of that CLO equity pre-GFC that went down to a dime on face mm-hmm. came all the way back. So this stuff is bulletproof. It can never go down. It's wonderful. And so and by the way, it has its CLO it has the word loan in it. doesn't really give you the ability to understand it. it's 10 times levered, right because it's a loan. What do you mean 10 times levered? And it should make 10 or 12 percent. so it's really it's great risk reward. when it was effectively terrible risk reward. And by the way, if it was such a great risk reward, why were the CLO managers selling it to other people when they could have had it all to themselves, mm-hmm. right? In fact, they were owning virtually none of it. And so uh, off the back of that CLO equity, they were able to raise triple A's um, that financed the right side of the balance sheet of the CLOs at incredibly low rates from international insurance companies in many instances at 30 BIPs, you know, or something along those lines. And that, therefore, created this gigantic wall of capital available to would-be leveraged lenders um, among the CLO managers who then suddenly were interested in buying loans that were higher leverage, cheaper, badly structured, etc. And at the same time, as the alternative space boosted the opportunities available for access to capital for private credit managers, lo and behold, the size of those private credits became competitive with the leveraged lending space. And effectively, it was a race to the bottom on pricing between direct lending and leveraged lending. And then finally, given that massive availability of credit at incredibly low pricing with terrible structures, lo and behold, the PE firm said, well, instead of buying it eight times, I'm gonna buy it 12 times because I got to get my fund deployed, right? <laughs> and my ROE is gonna be okay anyway because my debt is so cheap. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem is that intrinsically the post-tax unlevered free cash flow of the enterprises is what it is. And so at that unlevered yield of eight or eight or ten percent, if you if you buy that at, you know, if you if you buy that into a seven or eight percent return, and you finance it at, you know, six or seven, uh, with incredibly um, you know, high amounts of leverage, when rates change, and or even if inflation arises and margins compress, lo and behold, you're gonna lose a lot of money. And so the same thing that is happening as we speak to this to the CRE owners, right, who effectively thought they were buying when they bought core real estate funds uh, and they looked at those big Cash flow producing assets and said, they're so safe. And they kind of intuited that the word core meant their investment instead of the asset. <laughs> when in fact, they had, you know, incredibly levered le- levered real estate equity purchased at a five cap, which left them completely exposed, not only to asset prices, but to rates. Uh, they're now sitting on things that are labeled core that are worth zero, right? When you think, well, core, maybe I'll make 3%, 6%. Yeah. I'm never going to lose my money, right? Except that it's gone. Right. They don't know it yet because it hasn't come through the nav statements, but it will. Um, and so a similar thing is happening in PE um, in many instances. And and ironically, it's happening in the same way, which is all of these, all of the most attractive areas, enterprise software, healthcare services, business services, which from an equity owner's perspective are fabulous because they have franchise value mm. without the use of capital. Right. So your cash flow conversion is very high. Well, at some point, if you have a wonderful business, but you kind of grotesquely overprice it and you borrow tremendously against it. You can have a great asset or a great enterprise, um, but you just may not own it for long because your creditors now own it, right? Uh, And so that is, we saw the most bankruptcies in 23 that we had since 2010, and those issues are continuing to escalate. And then finally, in structured finance, we've seen escalated delinquencies uh, throughout the structured finance universe uh, in ABS. And we haven't seen it translate into pricing because, for instance, many of the what they call real money or conventional financial institutions, insurance companies, and others that own that credit don't have to um, take the losses, mark-to-market losses into their income statement. They could only put it on their balance sheet as long as they don't sell. So what are they going to do? Not sell, no matter how bad it is, right? And so, uh, you know, that, that will be arising soon. And so we have this kind of uh, confluence of circumstances in monetary and fiscal policy that have now led to this bubble and its, its subsequent popping that we're in the midst of as we speak. And many have have turned, have raised the issue of, you know, it being a golden age of private credit, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of is right on new issue, new things to do. Uh, and in fact, the entire marketplace, in my view, has is evolved into what I would refer to as a barbell opportunity. Whereas on the one side, on the right side of the barbell, we can go after all the busted opportunities created through the implosion of these various bubbles. And on the left side with the dust clearing, there are new issue areas as we are pursuing in conventional real estate mortgages, uh, asset-based lending, lower middle market, cash flow lending, parts of energy lending, lots of great stuff that were kind of horribly mispriced for a decade Mm. during the bubble era that are great things to do fresh on the left side of the balance on the left side of the barbell. And so uh, most of the folks who are um, touting this kind of left side opportunity, are forgetting to mention that they're loaded with some of the right side of the barbell opportunity that they were they they had a hand in creating.
0: Mm. You you paint a more worrying picture than I'd probably pick up from what reading the general business news. So you outline a number of like I think you call them train wrecks. And so we started with venture and growth, and that mm-hmm. happened early. Mm-hmm. And then we went through to sorry, what was next? The
1: fund space broadly. Yeah, the
0: funds and so that happened mm-hmm. with the the secondaries. That's to a big, began to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And then there's the commercial real estate which you're playing into now. So that's a yep actually happening. The 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 kind of the leverage finance one that's slightly more hypothetical or are you actually seeing this happen now?
1: Well, bankruptcies don't lie. I mean th- they're filing, but you're getting a lot of uh, amend extend this this new term called liability management exercise, right? If if a liability management exercise means you failed, mm-hmm. right? It was the business was misproperly capitalized and there's a restructuring going on. You know, but people are trying to use language to kind of paper mm-hmm. over uh, failure yeah. of various sorts. And CLO obligations have been much more difficult to find, particularly the equity. The, the credit has more recently tightened in terms of the right side of those balance sheets. And so that ability to refi is hitting the same type of wall that it did with CRE. And people are going through these amended extend, and pretend up uh, exercises in order to hide it. Right.
0: And so- this goes back to your fund structure. Are you, are you are you raising money around these opportunities in order to play into them? Is well,
1: that- within our multi strategy, we're going after all of it, right? right. All that's good, uh, and waiting on all that's bad. Uh, but we are, in fact, looking at uh, raising capital for on the right side of the barbell, things like um, uh, things like uh, litigation finance, where there's a lot more opportunity. It's uncorrelated, or mm. or uh, special situation secondaries, where there's a fabulous opportunity. And on the left side of the barbell um things like commercial mortgage lending and asset based lending where again it's it was really unappealing for many many years and now it's back back around and quite compelling mm. and we're doing all of those things in the multi strategy anyway.
0: So I used to think that special situations was like a euphemism for distressed turnaround investment but the mm. way you explain things it, it just does sound like special situations and so let me give you an armchair analysis, kind of hypothesis and it might be completely wrong but sure my my view of the world of the last 10 or even 20 years is that it's been remarkably benign in terms of a trading environment for, for many companies. And, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, it felt like, um, you know, if a company was badly managed, then when the the economy went into a downturn, that became perhaps an opportunity for a a turnaround investor. Mm -hmm. Um, but we've seen during that say 20 year period, much less of that. And, I think it's probably, it speaks to what you were saying about all the intervention. We live in a more kind of intervening global economy and regulators are more regulation and everyone's trying to clamp down on everything and let's say socialize the cost of bad management, whether it's state bad, you know, economic bad management or company bad management. Right. Spread it all out and make sure that things just kind of rumble on and on. Right. And it's it's kind of in my mind I've got this image of you know you're trying to squeeze a balloon, the regulators trying to squeeze a balloon but eventually opportunity pops out because mm. you can't keep it in. Mm. And so from your from your perspective let's say the opportunity set perhaps maybe 30 or 40 years ago might have been uh you know selecting a region and looking for badly managed companies within it. But now it's kind of you can do it in a more macro way because the problems and the stresses Right. Are a result of something more macro, like regulatory arbitrage. Yes. So that's how a relatively kind of let's say, I don't know mid markety type operation mm-hmm. is able to prosecute a genuinely global strategy. Is that mm-hmm. a reasonable kind of?
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, again, the asset management industry loves using labels in order to kind of make the sale easier, right? Distress mm-hmm. isn't an asset class; it's kind of a state of being, uh, mm-hmm. and so it can happen everywhere for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. And so we like that. And so uh, it doesn't mean the un- underlying enterprise or asset is flawed. It just may mean the capitalization of it is right. And yeah. so that happens in everywhere in every way. With regard to the environment, um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the U.S. in the U.S., one of our greatest presidents, Ronald Reagan, um, once said that uh, some of the scariest words he'd ever heard were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um there's no economy and, and no, uh, private market situation that governments can't, uh, ruin. Mm. Uh, and certainly we saw it in the UK, uh, in the early seventies, uh, which was an mm. economic disaster wrought by kind of leftist policies that have shown their flaws in 100% of the time that they, the time that they've been implemented since they were created mm. as a notion starting with the, the late 1800s. Mm. And so, uh, that those circumstances gave rise to the availability or to the um, to the market's openness to to have someone like Margaret Thatcher come and start to kind of clean up the mess. Typically, there has to be an implosion wrought by the socialists before somebody of kind of liberal economic thinking is is permitted to kind of gain traction. And we saw that here. You guys jumped the gun a little bit. You hired someone who who uh, a prime minister and a and a chancellor who kind of committed the sin of telling the truth and were quickly bounced from office. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, you know we we these. These policies create opportunity. Um, bad government policy creates more and more and more opportunity, mm. uh, and so we think there's an incredible opportunity arising here because of this terrible combination of more, of of monetary and fiscal policy uh, that was that was pursued for you know in the in the in the former case since 2012 and in the latter case since 2020.
0: The other thing I noticed from looking at your website and some of your investments is you know distressed investors, which isn't the right term, obviously, but you know we used to call them vulture funds in this country they have a bad reputation or not a bad reputation but you know what i mean it's Mm. like the potentially the unsavory side of things and i was looking at your investments and um uh, i felt like there was greater social utility in a lot of what you've done absolutely than the average kind of mainstream vanilla private equity thing because and it's like you're you're rescuing things and some of them are like good in every way, like rehab centers and so on. But sometimes they're just, um, you know, hotel chains that have been struck by COVID or whatever. And you're going in. And for me, there's huge social utility in that. But it's so easy if you use these narrow Category bands yes to think oh, well there the They're the guys that go in when everything goes wrong. Yes Do You know what I mean? Seems so unfair <laughs>
1: Well, you would think that the appropriate rationalization of an economy's assets ultimately minimizes the uh, Cost of capital for that economy the more straightforward that process is mm. and so of course that's the case But you know Europe specifically as an example has a long history of kind of demonizing uh, you know opportunistic capitalists yeah, uh, and so that is incredibly unproductive.
0: Yes, yeah, and so like ESG, for example, is huge, mm. the, and that, and that's ESG is another area where you might get a kind of an arbitrage because regulatory arbitrage is very clear, right? There are rules. Yes, and you can't. But ESG, it's it's kind of like it's much less clear. It's but it still creates a mindset sets and kind of you know swim lanes, which in, in certain types of assets just become off limits, not necessarily because they're bad, but because people think other people might think they might be bad. And so suddenly that must create opportunities as well for a flexible investor, I guess.
1: Well, I think things like that, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a member of certain or and have been a member of investment endowments. And when ideas of those type arise, my question is always, well, how much return are we willing to sacrifice? Uh, People gave us money to endow this institution how much of their money and the return we would have gotten on it are we willing to sacrifice to express our social views through their money? Mm. And suddenly the answer is none. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think the, the the issue is, where do you start as an enterprise? From our perspective, whether there's ESG or not ESG, uh, there are things we will do and things we won't do, no matter who's telling us whether that's good or bad or the other, because we've thought through Wood is kind of decent and virtuous and things that we feel comfortable, uh, knowing the world knows that we're doing and those that don't. And there are things that we avoid that no one's told us not to that we do anyway. And there are things that we're going to do that actually do make sense no matter what they say, because they do make sense. Right. Yeah. And so that means that we're never going to be involved in things like greenwashing uh, mm-hmm. because we never had to think that way. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is in the case of energy is, Uh, do we want to deal with climate deniers? No. Do we want to deal with polluters? No. Do we want to deal with people who are destroying their communities? No. Do we recognize that energy transition is a 40-year reality, not a four-month or a four-year reality? Do we want these quote-unquote dirty areas to be cleaner? Uh, Absolutely. And so our views on those things don't change, uh, don't have to change. And so, therefore, we're not running toward it, and then running away from it, and then running toward it again, right? And just like you saw here in Europe, where it was, you know, we're all about ESG, and then suddenly people were faced with the possibility of a of a cold winter without Russian uh, without Russian energy, and they're like, oh my God, forget it, let me just get my coal, mm-hmm. right? And so we we're we're consistent in how we do things because we thought beforehand about who we're going to be and how we're going to operate. And we stay with that because it makes mm. sense.
0: And you don't, it sounds like you don't borrow your sense of morality from kind of the industry norm, which is, I think, the problem with ESG, to be honest with you.
1: Well, and of course, that's, that goes to the entire notion of being a seller of branded beta, right. right? And so much of the alternative space is in the marketing business, not the not the investment business. Yeah. And so if you're in the marketing business, you you, you do what sells.
0: So um, you've spoken about, so I get the impression that you'd rather be seen as like one of the grand high finance merchant Banks of the future than, yes. than I don't know about uh,
1: grand, but certainly merchant capitalists. Uh, yes,
0: absolutely. Yes. So, so what's your uh, ambition for uh, arena investors over the over the medium or, or long term? What's your what's your vision?
1: Well, I, I think it is to be uh, you know to be a a true kind of merchant capitalist um, and and continue to provide our stakeholders and our investors a kind of unending stream of that which does make sense and and keeping them out of trouble without having to make post, ex-post excuses with regard to, you know, having a, allowed this machine that we created to um, uh, permit those folks to negotiate the shoals that you typically find when you're kind of getting through cycles in the economy. And so there's an opportunity to be a true kind of merchant house. And, and frankly, we, you know, at times we will, we have found that we have an excess of intellectual property. And so some of these things we actually provide for third parties, you know, in, and you know, in very very difficult circumstances of workouts and or operational improvements,
0: um, you know, we do that for ourselves, but we also do it for third parties. And what do you like to deal with as 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 people? What's your culture like? If I'm a if I'm a counterparty to you,
1: I think we're pretty pleasant. <laughs> uh, I would say uh, certainly that in our world there tend there has tended to be a preponderance of folks who have grown up in the kind of rock'em sock'em commercial mortgage or or mortgage sell side world generally mm. that views every relationship as a counterparty relationship. Um, you know, we given 150 joint venture partners over 25 years do like to have long-term relationships with our partners. But I think we're clear about who our partners are versus who our counterparties are. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, we talk about being what we call tough, but fair. And so when we do have disagreements, we always start with, let's, here's the right thing. Let's just do the right thing. Um, it is unfortunate that in many instances, we actually find, um, you know, Burton Malkiel and the, and, the, and the Efficient Market notwithstanding, that very much people will uh, trade off their greed for their ego uh, and not do things that would actually make them richer if they only just kind of focused on the money. Hmm. There's a psychological
0: aspect to the, what you do, I think. Quite a bit, yeah. quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Thanks very much for uh, for sharing your views on on the world and best of luck with what lies ahead.
1: You're welcome. Thanks again for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to the Funshack Private Capital podcast. Now do me a favor with you. Wherever you're listening or watching, please leave a like or a rating and make sure you subscribe. It really helps, and I'd appreciate it. Fun Shack is another quality production of Linear B Group, the content and media provider for professional services and investment firms. Thanks for listening.